Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we're going to be talking about the Federal Reserve raising rates right now to slow down this rip-roaring, red-hot inflationary economy right now, today, Jay Powell. And Jay Powell hopes to be associated with that other great myth, that other great successful story, mythological success story, the Paul Volcker rate increase that brought inflation to heel. Now, in a previous episode, we discussed what was going to be a three-part story. And in part one, Jeff, we talked about how they seem to raise the federal funds rate to make the federal funds uh, somewhat scarce and therefore raise rates. And that was all part of the plan. But then when they did it, they realized, oh my God, what are we doing? They backed off. And also oil was a very important part of the story. Jeff, remind everyone what part one was all about of the Volcker myth. Well, great inflation, inflation, monetary phenomenon. Arthur Burns throughout the 1970s had no idea what the hell was going on, even though he was chairman of the Federal Reserve. They kept blaming everything else. And we go back to early 1971, uh, they tried wage and price controls. We talked about President Nixon calling the monetary liquidity explanation bullshit, his word, not mine. So for most of the 1970s, the Federal Reserve said, we don't know what's going on. It's not money. And then finally, they figured out, okay, maybe there's some kind of monetary issue here. It's been going on for about 15 years. So let's bring in somebody new. Let's see what we can do. So Paul Volcker comes in and he says, yeah, this is a money thing uh, because it's inflation. That's what money is. Money and inflation, those two things go together. But what are we going to do? Well, it wasn't so easy as, as it used to be where the Federal Reserve or any central bank could just say, go into the monetary system and yank out a bunch of cash and say, we're going to tighten the monetary supply by literally removing money from the supply. The monetary evolution, especially in the 50s and 1960s, made it effectively impossible. So as the Federal Reserve, all the tools that they had was, it's in their name, bank reserve. And what Volcker said is, all right, it's been going on for a long time. Let's try this anyway. Let's restrict the level of bank reserves. And they were always afraid to do this because they didn't want this to lead to 1929. They didn't want banks to fail. They were afraid of that, which was, as we'll see, that was never really a concern. But they were really kind of, they didn't really know what to do. So they thought, well, let's give this reserve restriction policy a try. And as we talked about in the prior episode, they did that. And immediately the federal funds rate skyrocketed competition for scarce reserves. And they backed off and said, OK, we need to do a bunch of re repos to get reserves back in the market. But the die had been cast. They were going to try this at one point or the other. And so it didn't happen in 1979, and it wasn't the, the recession in 1980 wasn't because of the Federal Reserve. It was because of OPEC, oil prices, Iran, all that stuff, scarcity. Sounds very familiar to our ears today. But the first part of the Volcker myth begins in 1979. He choked off the reserves, caused the recession, and then did it again in 1980 and 81, which first part of the, of the story we already told you, that's not what happened in 1979 and 1980. So let's move forward to that, that period in between the two recessions and see what the Fed was doing as well as what was going on in the overall system then too. That's right. And that first part we talked about, at least the Volcker myth in my mind was that he knew what he was doing. He had a plan and he told the presidents, this is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to cause a recession. We know what we're doing. That's possibly the most, the overarching image or myth. We knew what we were doing, 
But when we went over it in part one, it was clear they weren't sure what they were doing. That's going to be the case again here too. And very importantly, I think it's possible people just skipped over this because you said it quickly. Oil caused the recession. That's not us saying that. That's the people at the time. Contemporary accounts were saying they were all focused on oil. Nobody said anything about what they were doing causing a recession. Oil, oil, oil. And that's what actually happened. Now, looking back, we are told it was Volcker who caused, as you said. But OK, so we're moving on to part two now. Yeah, so let's let's extend the. Pro OK, so after the 1980 recession, Volcker's Fed said, let's do this bank reserve thing because we don't. I mean, consumer prices after the recession in 80 started to accelerate all over again. And they thought, well, crap, that didn't work. It's because nothing had changed. Nothing had really changed except an oil provoked recession in 1980 that was very sharp, but also very short. It only lasted about six months. And so the second half of 1980, the economy started to recover. Consumer prices started to accelerate. And the Fed thought, well, all right, is, if we were reluctant in 1979 to constrict reserves, we're not going to be reluctant this time. So starting in the second half of 1980 and then throughout the rest of this period, the Fed did what it said it was going to do. We constrict reserves. We're not going to care how high the federal funds rate gets up, up there. We're just going to stick to our plan here. And this, as you said, Emil, is the basis of the federal, of the Volcker myth, which is they intended to provoke not one, but two recessions just to show this vulgar display of power, to use a term from Pantera, to this show of force in, in monetary terms. We're going to restrict the money supply until it actually, we're going to choke this great inflation until it actually happens. And it just, it was never the case in 1979. It wasn't the case in 1981 either. So in 1979, they wanted to do this. Then they got scared. They backed off. They were, did the reverse repo program, right, to get reserves back out into the system. Now they're set. We're not backing down. We're absolutely going to do this. And this was all because, as you, you explained here, the theory was simple. The Fed would limit the supply of reserves, driving competition for them, which banks were required to hold against deposits, increasing their costs to a point it was thought to restrict bank credit. Limiting bank credit was presumed the long sought key to ending the great inflation. Jeff, is that correct though? That part, limiting bank credit, would that limit money? Is that correct? That's what they should have been trying to do. Is that right? Theoretically, this was a sound plan. Got it, okay. It started out with, hey, we're the Fed, we have bank reserves. Bank reserves aren't money. They are not money, and you can even, you don't have to take my word for it, you can take anybody's word for it at the Fed, anybody in the Volcker era, they will tell you the same thing. Bank reserves are not money, they're interbank tokens that have a specific purpose. So if you are a depository bank and you're creating a lot of depository liabilities, expanding the depository money supply, the stuff that used to be on, in, in M1, for example, what that meant was you're also creating a reserve requirement that you have to meet. And how you meet that is through either vault cash, which is expensive, cumbersome, not what you really want, or you can go to the Federal Reserve and borrow reserves from them, or you can go into the federal funds market and borrow reserves from somebody else. So the idea was, if you make these reserves scarce, it'll make it more costly for these depository banks to meet their reserve requirements. Therefore, they won't be able to make as many new deposit liabilities out of thin air as they had before because it's expensive. It's too expensive under the, that theory. 
And so it's, you know, if they can't make depository money, then they can't do bank credit because you're also limiting loans at the same time. Therefore, you're bringing the economy back back down to earth, ending the great inflation. So in theory, those four steps actually were sound. Limit bank reserves, making the reserve requirements expensive. That will then get a, uh, put a lid on depository money, which will then constrain bank credit, which will then uh, get a control over the economy and inflation. So that was the theory. The problem was bank reserves and depository money. And the other issue is that they portray themselves that there aren't four steps, Jeff. They portray themselves that they're the center of the monetary universe and what they say goes because it's narrative policy. It's narrative control. You can, yeah, you can hear the, the Greenspan conceit, right? Series of one year forward. We do something over here and then it predictably has effects all the way through the chain of, you know, the just system chain. And so we start here and, and what comes out is exactly how it started. And that's just, it's like a slinky. You start one end and it just moves up and down until the result is predictable from where we started. And that's just not how it works. They want you to think it's a slinky, but to me, it sounds like more like pulleys, ropes and levers. And I don't know <laughs> yeah. if that force is eventually transferred to the people who are in charge of money, which are limiting bank credit, right? Banks are in charge of providing bank credit. And it seems as if the Federal Reserve assumes that these people at the banks are dumb or scared of the Fed and not innovative and interested or in just making mechanical, money. Right. That's that's kind of the conceit here is that banks are just mechanical. Yeah, me exactly. They change a couple inputs and then they react and, and they, Predictably. It's, it's almost like it's programmed. We say do this, therefore you will do this because we are monetary gods and we control how the planets move around in this solar system. No, these people- I just want to say here too, Emil, before we go too much further, that was never the picture of the Federal Reserve before this time mm -hmm. or during this time and beforehand. This modern idea of this all-powerful institution pushing buttons, as you say, you know, making, making easy decisions and inputs, this, the monetary center of the universe, that is a modern invention. You go back, especially before the, you know, the great inflation, nobody thought the Fed was a great institution. The Great Depression. Everybody knew the Fed screwed that one up. So throughout most of its history, up until around the Volcker myth, and really the Volcker myth didn't really take hold until later in the 80s. So up until the late 1980s, the Fed was a joke. The Fed wasn't, it wasn't the all-powerful institution doing predictable, good, you know, this ideal technocratical agency. It was essentially a bungling group of incompetence. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So banks are in charge of money. The Fed says, do this, therefore you will produce less money and therefore less inflation. And at first blush, M1, a measure of a kind of some portion of money, did come down after the Fed first acted here in 1981. But what did M2 and M3 do? It seems as if they completely ignored the Fed as if it wasn't even there. M3 actually did the opposite. So M3 actually decelerated a little bit when the Fed was supplying reserves, which actually makes sense when you understand what was going on at the time. And we'll get to that in a second. So M3 dipped when the Fed, so the Fed panic constrained reserves, federal funds rate skyrockets. Then the Fed starts adding reserves back to the system to get the federal funds rate down. And as the Fed is adding reserves back to the system, lowering the cost of reserves, guess what happened? The types of money that don't need reserve requirements actually decelerate, while the types of money that do have reserve requirements, they're the ones that actually 
responded to the bank reserve. And then when the Fed decided we are going to hold bank reserves low, no matter what happens here, M3 reaccelerated all over again. So you can understand the game here. Banks had options. The monetary system had become so complex, the proliferation of products, as Alan Greenspan would say in June of 2000, which meant was some of these monetary forms, some of these liabilities on a bank's menu didn't have reserve requirements. They could transfer funds overseas to the euro dollar system, for example, so they could avoid reserve, require, or reserve requirements and costly reserves. So as the Fed raises the cost of reserves, banks would just simply shift from one liability to the next. They would, for example, tell their customers to buy money market funds and then borrow the funds back from money market funds in, in markets like repo, wholesale like repo. No reserve requirement. You've just circumvented what the Federal Reserve is trying to do. And so the Fed is trying to constrain reserves when banks are just simply, okay, reserves are expensive. I'm going to use a different form of money. I'm going to continue to do the business as usual for me because it's not as simple as the Fed does something and we all have to respond. The Fed does something and we can respond to it in various different ways, which the end result is this is not about the monetary system. Bank reserves are not money and the Fed is not, is not conducting monetary policy. So that was taking place in February 1981. Now we're moving forward to July 1981, a very important month for several reasons. And the FOMC is meeting again. And what do they see? They see that the M1s are down even more. Success, great. But the M2s and M3s are still growing quickly. And of course- As they, is bank credit. <laughs> as is bank credit. So absolutely yeah. no success no whatsoever. No correlation whatsoever, none. Jeff, something else happened at that time. Long-term bond yields began to fall compared to high levels of short-term rates in federal funds or money equivalent treasury bills. Today, we would think of that as an inversion. Is that right, Jeff? But would they, they yeah. at this, if I remember correctly, I believe the study that put this inversion on the map was 1985. I'm going just, it wasn't 1981. And so at that time, this wasn't a recession warning, was it? It wasn't a fait accompli. What were they thinking in 1981, July, when they were observing this? They were, I mean, if you take the yield curve literally, what that said is higher rates compared in the short run compared to long run, the market is expecting rates to come down. Now, today we know that's because usually recession, but at the time they were actually talking about the 1920s and 19-teens where occasionally this would happen. They were not necessarily looking at this as a recession signal. Some of them thought this was, a, hey, this is working because the market is actually plotting a course where a reserve restriction policy that raised short-term rates is actually going to lead to lower, term, lower, long, lower interest rates in the future, which means we must be successful at what we're doing. The banks, they were extending credit right until July 1981. So the banks were clued in. The market was clued in. In retrospect, the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, went back and they timed the 81-82 recession to begin in July. Now, the Volcker myth says they knew what they were doing. This is what they wanted. It was going to happen. This was all part of the plan. Jeff, should I read Chairman Volcker's quote here too? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's a little bit long, I but so. I'm going to emphasize the, and all the uncertainty here. I also think conditions are softening in the economy 
which may be optimistic compared to the view of some in the markets that even this level of interest rates wouldn't soften anything in the economy. I believe we are seeing, at the moment at least, some softening, but the burden of all the comments that were made around the table is that there is no simple way to get from here to there. I don't know whether the staff forecast or many of the other forecasts imply a fairly simple way. They don't imply big recessions or a big backtracking on inflation. It doesn't sound like they knew what they were doing was going to lead to a recession, which is what they said after the fact is what they were going to do. Yeah, and that's we'll get into in the third part when we get to that in the future about what exactly was rewritten, how this history was rewritten to fit the fit the circumstances. But as you're right, you're, you're right, Emil. 1981-82 recession up until 2008 was the worst recession in the post-war era. And they're talking about this on July 17th, I think it was 1981, which means they were already two weeks into that recession, still wondering what was going to happen. Now, the staff model said, yeah, we know the economy is getting weak because obviously it was. And that we think that maybe we'll, you know, the second half of 1981 will be somewhat slow and then we'll accelerate a little bit in the first half of 1982. But by the second half of 1982, things will be looking really good. It kind of reminded me a lot of the projections they made in 2007 and 2000, early 2008, where we would avoid recession. It wouldn't be too bad. And then we slowly accelerate and everybody would be happy, you know, rainbows and unicorns everywhere. But the, the staff projections were going to slow down, but not get too bad when uh, already it was recession city. The markets knew, the banks knew, the Fed was lost. Now, I read a comment there that tried to emphasize the uncertainty. Perhaps it's not as strong as the audience would like to hear, but these next two comments, quotes, you can't miss the uncertainty. This one is from Mr. Schultz. But it seems to me that that is only half the problem. Half the problem is that we don't know what the monetary aggregates are. The other half of the problem is that we don't know what the relationship is between the aggregates and GNP. Jeff, should I read Mr. Morris? Yeah, well, let's stop there for a second, okay. because again, the whole plan relied on the idea that they did know their relationship, first of all, between bank reserves and depository money, which was near money M1. Although at that time, they had already split M1 into M1A and M1B because they were really struggling to understand what was going on in the monetary system. As we've talked about, you know, all the way from the euro dollar on through the early 1970s, they knew the M's were obsolete, but they didn't have anything else. So they were struggling to come up with new ways. And really that statement was basically a confession that, yeah, we don't really know what's going on in the monetary system. We've been, we've been trying to figure it out for over a decade and really haven't had a whole lot of success, which again, kind of undercuts the myth here, which was that these monetary geniuses had an exact idea of how, almost quantitatively how much to quantitatively tighten the monetary system so that it would end the great inflation when at the, they didn't even know they were in recession. They had no idea what the relationship between bank reserves and M1 was. They had no idea M2, M3, how these things all fit together. They were just throwing crap at the wall and hoping something stuck. Jeff, you just said that the M's were no longer, they knew that a debt for the last decade that the M1s, M2s were no longer reliable. But am I, I always, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought by the end of the 1960s, they knew it was wrong and they had started researching them in the mid 60s. So it's two decades, let's say, 
they knew that something was wrong with the monetary aggregates and they weren't capturing it. So it's not just a decade. Yeah, they, am, I, am I overdoing it? Yeah, but the, the formal studies, you know, we've talked about Stephen Goldfell's The Case of Missing Money, things like that. And some of the studies, the FR, FRBNY and this really the Federal Reserve Branch in St. Louis conducted, those were more the middle 1970s. So they started, you know, they knew sort of had the, the, the idea that the monetary aggregates in the 60s and early 70s, they were not working. But it wasn't until the middle 1970s where they said, OK, let's see if we can figure this out. Let's take a real serious look at this monetary system, see what we can come cover. And it was the middle 1970s, really the late 1970s, where they said, yeah, this is this is just a friggin' mess. We don't really know what the hell's going on here. And as you know, I mean, you point this out to me all the time. Stephen Goldfell's essay was so refreshing in the fact that he said, I wanted to reestablish M1. I wanted to find the answers. And when I went looking into it, by the end of the, the process, I had more questions than I couldn't do it. I have no idea what's going on with money demand, not just in M1, but in a broad concept. And that led to this, you know, sort of last ditch effort, this M1A, M1B, uh, modified M2, this new M3 that's not the M3 that we all know. But, you know, this expansion of the monetary aggregates in the last half of the 1970s was sort of the Fed's last ditch effort to try to measure and understand this massive monetary evolution that had already taken place long before that. Here's Mr. Morse just to reinforce the idea that they didn't know at the time what they were doing. Well, Mr. Chairman, all this conversation or much of it suggests to me that we ought to face up to the fact that we do not know how to measure transaction balances in our present society. We have overnight repos, for example, that are used by a good many number of corporations as transaction balances and repos are not an M1B at all. I really don't think we will ever from now on be able to have a concept of a transactions balance in which we can have the same confidence we used to have in the old M1. Damning, damning. And he was right. He was absolutely correct because from that point forward, the Fed conjured this Volcker myth that, hey, we got it all under control. Nobody needs to look at this very closely. Don't worry about bank reserves, what they are. Don't worry about monetary policy. We've got it down. We know what we're doing when, in fact, it was the exact opposite. And Mr. Morris was exactly right. In the decades since then, the Fed didn't even bother trying. They just gave up entirely to go toward this expectations policy because they knew, they knew, as he said, they would never be able to get a handle on trans, even just transaction-based money from that point forward. And again, that leads to Greenspan's lamentations throughout the 1990s, June of 2000. Hey, the proliferation of products is so extraordinary. All that stuff. These private confessions that the Federal Reserve is not a central bank. They don't do money. They don't even know how it works. Jeff, it's not. I know it's a difficult problem, but they have thousand PhDs on staff. It's their job. They can use. They can do this. They can come close. They can do a much better job than they have. It's not a failure because they were asked to fly to Pluto and back. It's because why they didn't want to. I don't know. I, I don't. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit there. I think you think about it as sort of an intellectual arms race because the banking system was set free in this offshore space outside the United States, outside of really any regulatory jurisdiction. Banks knew what they were doing. They were experimenting and coming up with all sorts of things coming up. 
It's qualitative expansion more than quantitative expansion. And the regulators could just never catch up because as soon as they thought they would catch up to what the banks were doing, the banks would just do something else. And I think they you know, have a little bit of sympathy for the Fed, realizing at that point they were just outgunned. The monetary system had moved on far beyond them, and there was really nothing they could do about it. Now, where I fault them, and where I think we all should fault them, is they should have come clean about this mm-hmm. in 1980 friggin' one. Not to not hide the fact and not pretend like they're a real central bank and play this game over the last couple of decades because we're now suffering the consequences of that crap and that ridiculous myth, which was that this is a monetary agency, a central bank, when it never was. The Fed stopped being a central bank, I don't know when, 50, 60, somewhere around there. That's 70 years ago. Cool. 